Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Riders and Fighters, a podcast. I'm your host, AJ Ortega. Every week on this show, I interview someone involved in riding or someone involved in fighting. This is episode 32, and I have a rider on today. The Joshua Adams is a poet and critic calling in from Louisville, Kentucky. I found Joshua and his writing on Twitter and thought he had some cool poems and his interest in cars, which it says in his Twitter bio. Uh, that interests me, and so I invited him on. We have a really good talk. Before he reads us a poem, he tells us about how he got interested in reading and writing. Then he tells us about how he navigates writing in different genres because he does poetry, criticism, translation. And then we finish up talking about cars and a little bit of fight stuff. I want to thank all y'all for being patient as I get this content out to you. Been a little down and out with some physical pain and then some mental brain fog and anxiety and things like this. But we're here now. And before I get to that interview with Joshua, I want to talk a little bit about UFC fighter pay, and specifically last weekend, Cheyenne Bays, uh, a UFC fighter, she got a big win last week, and several months ago, she and her husband were on the same card, which was a historic first. Unfortunately, they both lost their fights. But over the weekend, Cheyenne Bays fought and won with a really spectacular head kick. Timed perfectly and followed up with some ground and pound. Happened in less than a minute or right at a minute, I think. And I'll, I'll try to include that in the show notes. And so it was an impressive win, and it secured the performance of the night for her, which includes a $50,000 bonus. And this is on top of her $10,000 to show up and $10,000 to win. In the post-fight interview and in the press conference, she mentions that she's broke, that she had just uprooted her life in Dallas, I think Dallas, and moved to Las Vegas to a new training camp and to be closer and all these kinds of things, and had to take out a loan from a few people, totaling $15,000 just to get into a house, and that her win would make twenty k, and that would make her square so she could catch up but that this $50,000 bonus is a game-changer. It's quite life-changing to her. And so this brings up the issue about fighter pay. The UFC as an organization makes a, a lot of money, a ton of money, and a lot of folks within the UFC and those associated with it make tons of money. But does every fighter make big money? And the answer is no. The champions and big money draws make well into the six figures, and guys like Conor McGregor make a few million per fight. But I don't know if that's the way it should be. And it's hard because the fight game is not rewarding for most people. It's just like the riding world isn't lucrative for most people. Same thing with musicians, comedians, uh, artists of all kinds, including the martial arts. And so most fighters have a day job and additional ways to make income as they train. And training takes time and money, so there has to be something to offset that. Especially after the UFC made the, I think, dumb decision to make their fight kits, the the gear that they wear in the ring, uh, they made them exclusive to Reebok. And then now Venom, uh, the new this brand Venom, 
which means that fighters can't have their own sponsors on their trunks. And they used to get a few sponsors that would pay them, right? And so they can buy gear and train, pay for and train and pay for gym dues and a nutritionist and eat healthy and, and so on. And so without that performance of the night bonus that Cheyenne Bay's got, if you fight every three months, that's like four times a year. And if you only make 20K if you win, again, at that level, she's not a superstar, at least not yet. I think she has only seven or eight pro fights, I think. And so if she's making 20K per fight, that's 80K a year, like if you win every match, right? And that doesn't seem like a whole lot. I mean, it's more than I make, but I'm in education and writing, so I'm choosing to be poor every day. But it doesn't seem like a lot to me. And that's a super busy schedule and injuries happen. And, you know, it doesn't seem like a lot to me for a professional athlete competing in the largest MMA promotion in the world. Like they're on my TV, so it seems like they should be getting some, they should be getting that ESPN money, right? That ESPN level money, I should say. And so I'm a big proponent of fighters, unions, and promotions giving them like health benefits and salaries and things like this, but mostly they're treated like independent contractors, and most fighters ain't getting rich and flying in private jets. The top few percent are, but most are not. So I'm happy for Cheyenne Bays, but. Uh, honestly, I wasn't a fan of hers at first. Like after her first uh, UFC debut, her first match of several months ago, uh, she had kind of an attitude in the post-fight interview and chip on her shoulder. And and I know she's very young in her career. And so I wanted her to be a little bit more humble in her first UFC loss. But this is a really good story. And I'm quite happy that it's going to help her get some financial security and uh, pay off some debts. It's, you know, that's a a weird feeling to have that looming over you. I know that feeling. And so I'm quite happy that she got that fight of the night bonus. And instead of making 10K for losing, she won and got a bonus totaling 70 grand in, in, in one, one showing. So I think we'll see her again at the top of some prelims or at the opening of some main card in the future. And so I'm wishing her luck because... You know, happily married, pro-fighting couple, moving and sacrificing. It seemed to pay off, so I wish them both luck. All right, y'all. So uh, that's my little thoughts on fighter pay in a very small nutshell. So let's get to that interview with Professor V. Joshua Adams. He's a poet, critic, translator, and he's a car guy. So it was a fun one, and so I hope you guys enjoy it as much as I did. All right, y'all, I am sitting here on Zoom with the Joshua Adams. I should call you Joshua, though? Joshua's good. Joshua, awesome. So maybe tell us a little bit about who you are and how you ended up on this podcast. Well, I am a poet and a critic and a professor at the University of Louisville here in Louisville, Kentucky. And I ended up on this podcast, I think, by means of the Twitter uh, algorithm. <laughs> joined Twitter uh, right when the pandemic started, actually, and uh, posted some pics of work and also some of my other interests. And I think that may have uh, led me to you. Yeah. And, um, 
I've listened to the podcast a few times uh, now, and uh, I'm happy to be in a context where two very different things are brought together, um, writers <laughs> and fighters. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, the the Twitter algorithm said, hey, these people follow you, maybe follow this guy. And so uh, there I am clicking around on my phone and saw some of your recent poems that you had gotten published. And I was like, very cool. And then in your Twitter bio, it says uh, old books and old cars. And I was like, okay, we'll get to car stuff later uh, in the podcast, sure enough. But that'll be cool because I'm a car guy myself. Oh, excellent. Um, Yeah, so that'll be fun. That'll be fun. So cool. So poetry and criticism. Tell me what first got you kind of into reading and writing because you're like me, professor, and write and get your stuff out there. Uh, this is a big part of our lives now. I, I, you're, I'm, people can't see, but I'm looking at you and you have uh, all these books behind you and so do I. And so tell me, what first got you into the reading and writing stuff? So I wrote poetry as a child. I remember my mother putting a piece of mine, I think from kindergarten, uh, on the refrigerator, a poem, yeah. um, a winter scene. There were icicles maybe a chipmunk puffing or something. Right. It was in free verse. That's, that's what I re- remember about it. Irregularly spaced uh, lines. And, you know, it became a thing that recognized interests. There weren't that many books of poems in my house when I was young. The ones I remember are Shel Silverstein, obviously, who oh, yeah. was kind of, I think he was a ubiquitous presence in the 70s and 80s, maybe less so now, I'm not sure. Um, But also a book of light verse by an interesting and somewhat well-known, but also kind of obscure formalist poet, X.J. Kennedy. The book was called Bratz, and it was light verse about naughty children. Nice. I think the book had been a gift because the word brat was not welcomed in our house. So the book kind of acquired... a talismanic <laughs> sort of aura. Yeah. It was uh, a bit, you know, naughty. Um, and later on, I, I went to some Saturday morning classes at the local community college for, you know, kids to read and write poetry. And, and that's where I remember reading Blake and Wordsworth and Dickinson for the first time. And Frost, uh, too. I have strong memories of those. Sure. You know, obviously not their most challenging work. Um, but um, right. I do remember reading that Dickinson poem about, um, you know, taking the carriage ride with, with death uh, as a, you know, I might have been like 10 or 11. Wow. Um, and uh, later on, you know, I, I read French poetry in, in high school in French class. And Baudelaire and Rambeau really blew my mind. And I thought this is something entirely different and I want a piece of this and around the same time I read Elliot to uh, the the love song of J. Alfred Krufrock and that was it and that poem spoke directly to me and also in a sense for me from across a big gulf of time and space and that was an amazing feeling and I thought I want to do this very I think cool. that poem is, a, is very commonly sort of a gateway into people's poetic vocation at least for for yeah my generation i think also another one of those gateways is one of the things you brought up uh you know early in the childhood is you 
grab a hold of this book that's kind of has a taboo title, Bratz, right? Or it seems yeah. like a little on the edges of what is maybe quote unquote accepted and, 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 and read and shared in these ways. And so yeah. I, I remember seeking out those books like, you know, not reading yeah. stuff for class and then going to, you know, fi finding out at the public library, there's books with bad words in them. And I'm like, I'm going to read right. these, you know, and that there was yeah. this attraction that it's like, oh, it's it's like they're trying to keep it from us like school wise. But then I found it over here and it's public, right? It's at the library. And so yeah. you, you, you latch on to this thing that is exciting to read, right? And hold on to. I think that's a really cool start as well. Um, yeah, I didn't I didn't appreciate the fact that, you know, Silverstein himself, though, he was ubiquitous. There is a transgressive dimension. He had been a kind of countercultural figure. And I, of course, didn't know that at the time. But right. yeah, the delights of transgression, you know, and that's it came back when I read Baudelaire and Rambeau, because that's, you know, at the center of what they're both doing. And so at a certain point, you start you're reading some pretty. I don't want to say heavy or complex, but I guess those are the words I'll use. Poetry at a pretty young age. And so you were like a reader growing up and like you were like, that's what kind of stimulated your your mind, like literature and, and again, complex stuff. You know, I, I can't take total credit for it. I, you know, I had an expensive education. And so right. a lot of stuff was, was, you know, presented to me. Sure. Um, so I was I was very fortunate and privileged in that respect. But I do think it, I gravitated towards stuff that was older. Sure. You know? That's what I'm trying to get at. Yes. Uh, yes. Really, you know, I was when I first read Midsummer Night's Dream when I was 12, for example, that was a really incredible experience. Um, so I, I tended to, even now I tend to, I tend to veer to the old often. Okay. Very cool. I also saw in there, and this may come into play with the, the French work you were reading, but you do work in translation. Tell me about how that came about and which languages and stuff like that. Tell me a little bit about that. Sure. sure. So, you know, I, I mentioned the, the French poets and I was reading them in the original. And um, one thing that was occurring, right, was that I had to translate them to have access to what the poems meant. And, and what I was discovering in, in those cases was something that was entirely new and uh, that had not been a part of what I, my conception of poetry. Sure. And, you know, I think what I didn't realize at the time was that this is exactly why many poets translate. Um, they're looking for something that they can't find in their own language yes. or cultural yes. milieu. And, you know, like, even if it ends up that whatever you find, the, the sensibility, the images, the sounds, whatever, right, even if it's there in your culture or language, and I think it, it almost always is, you know, um, you can find a lot of the stuff that impressed me in French symbolism in, I don't know, 17th century English poetry or, sure. or 14th century Italian poetry. The process of searching and finding and negotiating the language barrier and articulating the work in a new idiom it almost necessarily stimulates you into producing something that feels new and invigorating. And so, you know, my sense of poetic vocation and translatorly vocation kind of go together. Um, right. Right. I, I, I translate principally from the Italian, which is a language I, I learned in, in college and then 
sort of relearned and and I went to Italy and, and spent uh, time there and, and nice. my interests there were both literary and personal because I've got my family origins are are there very cool but I translate from it occasionally I've got some translations that are coming out in anthology that will be out soon and I'd like to do more of it as well as from the French at the moment though it's it's taken something of a backseat to my own poems I, I tend to translate when I'm feeling like in a rut creatively and, and when I'm feeling creative, I, translation tends to sort of go to the side. Yeah, that was one of the things I was going to ask you that, you know, you have the writing creatively part in your poetry practice, then you also have the heavy analysis you do through criticism and theoretical things. Mm-hmm. And then you have this third thing, this translation, which is, this whole uh, again uh, this whole other very complex uh, order of thinking here and so you do find yourself kind of bouncing between them according to what zone you're in yes definitely I, I think that you know like poetry you know translation is something that demands uh, creativity and flexibility but then also an analytical kind of approach or or interpretive you know approach uh so i think you know it's stimulating both of those things uh, simultaneously definitely yeah speaking of poems and poetry and stuff what about reading a poem for our audience sure sure i'll read something that was published uh, recently in the magazine posit this piece is called circles they sent me to school in the great forest planted by the timber company where each morning the chaplain would pray to the trees there was a river somewhere but i was afraid to go down to it on account of the color of the water menacingly clear as though all the silts and leaves and branches and rocks had no real contact with anything. Things sat or floated on. That was it. Nothing mixed. I usually couldn't find the river anyway and was always getting lost in the woods until the wardens came galloping on their Arabians to bring me back for my punishment of competitive knitting. I never won, or even made a hat or scarf I would not be too embarrassed to wear. And so when winter came, I was not only chastened, but chilled. That's when you found me, staring at the stopped clock, and showed me the way out. A ritual where we locked the door, turned up the halogen lamps, and stared at each other until we decided which swimsuits most flattered our blanched bodies? High-cut one-pieces or string bikinis? The parrot helped, too, from his roost in the common room, even if he only said things he had been trained to say. What color? Be good. Wanna go. Wanna go. Great. Again, that was Circles from the journal Posit, the Journal of yeah. Literature and Art. And we'll have a link for that in the show notes and on the website, all that good stuff. You had this quote on 
Twitter. I dug in your Twitter maybe the past month or so to see what you were about to prep for this. And you had mm-hmm. this quote on there. Well, you, you posted this. You said, poems are fictional and non-fictional at the same time, just like the self. And I was like, shit, I want to put that on the back of my T-shirt or something like that, man. It's great. Tell me, maybe yep. you want to tell us a little bit about that poem. I don't want to make this English class or anything like that, even because we're professors, we can get in that mode. But, like, what about that poem? What what, what are you trying to, you know, that's the thing. It's like, what, what, what am I supposed to come away with here? How did you arrive at this idea to this execution? Yeah, well, I think that it's the remark was just something I had dashed down while working on some other things. And, and I thought, you know, let's see what other people think of this. And I guess people, you know, seemed to think something of it. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, it got, it got more love than my tweet tweets usually do. Mm. But, you know, I think I was, I've been thinking a lot about um, the fact that poets write from their lives and also don't write from their lives and that that's happening often in the same poem and, and frequently, you know, in, in, within a line uh, of a poem. And so there's that, there's the fact that we mix things that are parts of our lives with things that are not. And that was the case in this poem circles. That is to say, there are things that are um, non-fictional about that poem. Sure. That is to say things that occurred or exist in this world. Um, And then there are things in that poem that are fictional that did not occur or that exist in in a fictional world. Right. And so there's this kind of paradoxical tension. But I think there's another dimension to it, which is not just descriptive, but in being fictional and non-fictional at the same time, oftentimes what poems are doing are pointing out something that is dissatisfying, or frustrating, or blocking about this world. So sure. the, the fictional element, you know, some people like to think of it as a utopian element, right, or a critical element. And I think that's sort of what I was getting at here is that there are things about this world <laughs> that are problems. Right. And poems often express a wish for those problems to be solved. Even though I think we know, right, there are some problems that we don't appear to be able to solve. You know, principally, uh, death sure. and, and mortality is a great um, motivator uh, of poetry and, and immortality is a great aspiration. Uh, of poetry. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I like that. But also, also the problem of, you know, just different consciousnesses, you know, I mean, there's a barrier between us, between people, you know, I'll, I'll never be inside your head and, and you'll never be inside mine. And, you know, poetry is a kind of a, is a way to sort of wish, wish that away. Sure. Um, I, I can't take credit for that, for the, for the ideas I've I've just professed. They, they came to me from Alan Grossman, who's a great, now deceased, uh, great poet and, and critic. Not, not well known enough. Um, cool. But that's how I think I would connect that that tweet to um, the, the poem. Both, it's like a description of 
features of the poem and also like description of the aspirations uh, of poem. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of poetry we read and study and like and admire are built this way and that even through school and so we're almost kind of that idea that poems are fictional and non-fictional at the same time. But then, you know, you and I have both, you know, been at, at reading somewhere, right? And Q&A time comes around and yeah. somebody read a short story, somebody read a poem. It's like, oh, was that autobiographical? And it's like, well, everything I write is part of me. Like, it's such a weird, simple, non-question, but such a fucking complex idea at the same time that it's like I could just want to just kind of dismiss it and move on. Or I could talk about it for two or three hours because yeah. everything I write is part of me. Right. Even if something yeah. as simple as like, you know, writing a book review or something like that, like you you still have to inject, you know, you into that. And so you do have this yeah. fictional and non-fictional friction in a right. lot of poetry and a lot of writing. Yeah. Yeah. I sometimes have gotten that question yes. about autobiography and I, I share your impatience. <laughs> with God, dude. What I usually respond with is, can you tell me why? that matters to you or, or what would you think if I said yes or no? Right. And usually it starts a conversation about, you know, values and authenticity. That's more interesting than the question of, you know, did this actually happen? Sure. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I try not to be impatient with the. No, I mean, I, I'm I happy to ask questions period. It can be frustrating. Um, I would say that, you know, it didn't occur to me until just now, but, you know, it's not just poets who are in this paradoxical situation. Uh, you know, I'm not a scholar of fiction, uh, but I'm a reader of fiction. And the whole genre of auto fiction seems to me what to be. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, it seems to me to yeah. be. A, a, another way of saying something is <laughs> fictional and non-fictional at the same time. Right, uh, right. And, you know, I think that the statement goes on to say, just like the self, right? I, I, I think that, you know, we create ourselves. Daniel Dennett says that we're all virtuoso novelists writing, our, you know, the story of our lives in acting uh, as the people we are. So there's a kind of artificial aspect to the self, but then there's like the non-artificial aspect of consciousness, right? I think that that <laughs> consciousness yeah. is real, you know, sure. and it's not, a, it's not an artifact in, in the sense that it's being made. It's, it's there. It's, it's, it's a, I think consciousness is a kind of a given. Right. So, so that there, there's both of those things happening at the same time, you know, in, in our sense of ourselves, I think it's, I think it's, you know, it's rare to find somebody who who feels that um, the self is is totally made up, um, but also rare to find someone who believes it's just it's just totally a given that you have no control over at all. Right. Um, yeah, I think most people, uh, most reasonable people, are yeah somewhere in that middle part there for sure. Speaking of, uh, you brought up Shel Silverstein earlier, and uh, I saw that you had a handful of vintage playboy magazines and one of them had shell silverstein in the table of contents mm -hmm. and uh i had just picked up a 1964 i think it's october and i grabbed it because there was a bradbury story in there and yeah. and uh 
an interview, a, a boxing interview, Muhammad Ali interview in there. Speaking of Louisville, Kentucky. Yes, native son, Muhammad Ali. Yeah, and what's interesting there in, the, in the, that article I have, it's an interview as Cassius Clay in 64. And I think that's the year he was publicly saying, call me Muhammad Ali. Okay. You know? And so I think it might be one of the last high profile ones. Mm-hmm. Any other cool gems you find like that in the in your stack of Playboy mags? <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> not to sell you out I, there, but you put it on Twitter, so I figured I'd bring it up. <laughs> yeah, you know, I happened upon a few in a used book sale here right. in Louisville. That's where I found mine. And used bookstore. The, I, you know, I was buying other things, but I thought if these are still around by the end, I'm going to pick them up because they were very inexpensive and they looked to be in good shape. And I was curious about them. I, I had never owned, um, I don't recall ever owning or purchasing a pornographic magazine. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, so at the end of the sale, I bought them and uh, the sale was at a church here in Louisville. And so as I'm, as I'm checking out, you know, I bought a lot of books and there's the playboys, these, these old church ladies, they're leafing through the playboys. And one of them looks at the cover and says, Oh, I remember this one. And it, it was just a really <laughs> funny a moment because for them, they would have been part of a generation where that magazine would just be like part of the furniture. You know? Sure. Um, so I got a few more, um, you know, at, a, at, at an online auction. I'm just, I'm just very sort of, I'm just curious about them principally as artifacts of middle brow intellectual right. culture. I think right. there that Hefner had a sense of what intellectual life looked like to, or, or should look like to you know, the, the mass consumer of media. For sure. And, you know, there's the knock on this, right, is that he basically just got inferior work uh, from uh, big names. Right. right. Uh, and, you know, I haven't read through the, all of them, all yeah. of them. So I don't know. I don't, I think that's probably maybe a little unjust. Um, but, you know, I read a Vonnegut story in one of them and Ray Bradbury. And, but um, the reporting is frequently, I think, good. There's lots of articles on civil rights and um, contraception, Vietnam. Vietnam is, is obviously a big issue uh, in, in, in the pages of all media in the 60s. Um, and then the interviews are excellent. The so the Muhammad great. Ali interview is a good example. And I read the Stanley Kubrick interview. That was one of the pieces I got at the book sale. One of right. the um, issues uh, had that sticker on the cover advertising. And, and it's terrific. And so, you know, I'm just very curious about that in part because, you know, like there's something validating as an intellectual about a project that brings intellectual life to lots of people, right? So, yeah. you know, nowadays we talk about public humanities, but there's, yeah, yeah, there's yeah. like an element of Playboy that sure. was doing that. Of course, right? Of course, it's deeply misogynistic. Of all course, that, all, that, it's on yes. the back. all that's true. All that. All that's true, you know? 100%. Um, but uh, it, it's kind of a, it's an interesting sort of uh, tension paradox. Yeah, you know, it does have a really, the way you framed it when you said that, it kind of gives us this... Um, or I'm paraphrasing that there's 
it gives you this kind of snapshot of this portrait of what the perception of what, you know, this, uh, like you said, middle brow, like slash wanting to be highbrow culture and upper middle brow. Uh, there we go. There we go. Right. Just trying to eke on over. And, yeah. and yeah, like I, when I was, when I, when I see a stack of the vintage playboys at a used bookstore, I flip through and I just look at the table of contents and you can see, like, if you look at several from the sixties, you really do get an impression of what they were trying to project there with the, the yeah. writers they're getting, the movie stars they're interviewing, right. and stuff like that, uh, and whatnot. Yeah. It's really interesting. It's something that you've said makes me think that what's interesting to me is the attempt to integrate the intellectual into a lifestyle, right? The, it's the, a the, lifestyle the, magazine, exactly. Yeah, to fit, yeah, to fit intellectual debate into a lifestyle and you know there's a history of doing that and playboys would be part of that right history. yeah speaking of history and stuff like this you said you're into old cars at least your twitter bio says in what it, capacity yeah. about uh, about old cars like uh, uh wrenching on them or you i know you put cool pictures of some at like uh maybe car shows or cars and coffee type stuff tell mm-hmm. me about your old car fascination so i was a car fanatic from the beginning uh, as, a, as a child. I think car was one of my first words and <laughs> I had uh, a robust collection of matchbox cars nice. as, a, as a child. One of the stories my parents like to tell is we took a tr- trip. I must have been three, two or, th- or, th- or three uh, to Greece and Yugoslavia um, and this would have been 1980. And we were in a resort, I guess, on the Dalmatian coast. And I go to the pool and there's a couple of European kids running around. And here I am, the American, and I've got my carrying case full of Matchbox cars. (laughs) And I open it up and like apparently it was a, a huge scene. All the kids come running and... And even though we didn't speak the same language, my parents always say that, you know, like we made the same noises with the cars. And that oh was like, Oh my God, that's so fucking cool, dude. So I, I grew up car crazy. My, my parents didn't really like American cars. It was the Malays era. And they also, you know, they might've had a bit of aspirational snobbery um, as part of that. But I grew up, Surrounded by Volvos, BMW, Porsche, mm-hmm. even Range Rover. I think my father was was one of the first people um, to buy the, the Range Rover when it was reintroduced uh, to the United States. He was a surgeon. He needed a car to be able to um, get in and out of New York City in, in inclement weather. And, uh, of course, there were lots of other cars he could have bought to do that. Um, <laughs> but he was attracted to the... The, the the kind of the vintage vintage sportsman aspect of the ro- rover they're so cool yeah our uh, but our our nanny uh mary who lived with us uh, during the week she bought a great looking fox body mustang oh, yeah. in 1986 and that was a car i, lo- I loved uh, dearly and um learned in part to drive uh, in that uh, car Nice. Unfortunately, it, it it did not have the big uh, five liter uh, engine. I was about um, to say, was it, it was a little five point Fox body. No, yeah, but it was it, it was it's sharp, sharp looking car. Oh, hell yeah. Um, 
my dad, I remember my dad used to let me skip school and, and he took me to the New York auto show, um, 87, <laughs> oh, yeah. 88, 89. And it was an exciting time because, you know, the nineties were approaching and like a lot of the nineties cars were visible in concept form in right, the late 80s. Right. And, you know, in the nineties, I think it's now generally recognized truly great era for automobiles. So many cool nineties cars. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, now they're, they're appreciating quite rapidly since we're all sort of nostalgic uh, for our childhoods. But um, my interest waned a little bit in college and graduate school until I, uh, I inherited my father-in-law's uh, 1974 Volkswagen Carmen Ghia. A little Ghia, kind of, 1600 yeah. dual port. Yeah. Yeah. It, that reignited things. And so in the past few years, I've begun to learn to wrench on cars, uh, cool. the VW, uh, and also my BMW, which is 17 years old. Uh, so it's almost an antique now. Oh, yeah. Um, but I, I take it to the racetrack on occasion. So things tend to wear out and, and sure. break. <laughs> so oh, man, I um, do track days, man, on the. Yeah, I do, I, you know, as much as I can. It's obviously it's expensive and time consuming. But man, it is a rush. It is a rush. No, I'm a big car <laughs> guy and stuff. And first car was a 71 Volkswagen Squareback. You know? Oh wow! Okay, so I'm, I'm, and, and, uh, quite rare now. Quite yeah, rare now. Dude, it's one of those I kick myself for, but I had to sell it to go to school and shit, so you can go to grad yeah. school and whatnot. But uh, yeah. I think every car person needs a, a, an old Volkswagen in their life at some point, in part because they're so easy to work on, oh, and yeah. you have to work on them. <laughs> so oh, yeah. it prepares you. They really are the again, dude. That sixteen hundred that, that that's in your. Gia, dude, I know where every bolt on that fucking engine goes now. Like, cause I had that that square back. Then after that, I had a there was a sixty eight. Then there was a seventy seven Baja. And then, uh, yeah, just yeah, very simple though. Like, the only thing simpler is a motorcycle engine. You know, right? That's the only right. thing simpler, really. Um, yeah, it's a. I think there's a learning curve with old cars, and you know, I think VW is a good place to start. Oh yeah, and you know, then British, <laughs> and then. <laughs> And then maybe you, you know, you go to the continent. I think, you know, you ascend, as you ascend the degree of difficulty, you, you get closer to Italy and France, oh, <laughs> where yeah. oh, I mean, yeah. the, the engineering is incredible, but the having to do the maintenance is, uh, you know, you really have to be an expert uh, mechanic. No, yeah. Uh, about a year or two ago, I started looking at the, the late 90s. Porsche Boxsters because I can afford one now, you know, and yeah. so I'm like, hell yeah, and but you're right, yeah. they're appreciating. Just the last two years, I'm like, dang, they keep going up a couple grand every yeah. year now. I can't grab one because I want yeah. one for cruise around on the weekends and then do track days was kind of my plan, sure. you know, or yeah. autocross or or something like that. Right. Very. Yeah, good. that's a, that's a good choice. I think that they are appreciating. Everything is, you know, they're. There, I don't know if this will be that interesting to people. Um, sure. You know, well, they'll um, listen anyway. <laughs> there's a, you know, a, there's a mania now for air cooled Porsches, and uh, those 911s have become so stratospherically uh, priced oh. that they've they've lifted prices of other cars, uh, and Boxer would be an example of that. That's a good choice. I, I, I've thought about that myself. I've never owned a convertible, so that my next mm-hmm. my next purchase, uh, I'm sure, will be a drop top. I have to. I have, I'm working on a, uh, a critical, uh, a book. I have to finish that book. And then I think I'm reward yourself. There you go. Hunting for a vintage, you know, s- simple convertible. No, yeah. Something, uh, 
get the sun on you. Yeah, uh, had a had an '86 and then an '87 Nissan 300ZX. Oh, I love that. T tops, both of them. Uh-huh. That last yeah. one was really clean when I got rid of it, man. But uh, yeah, uh, yeah, silver with the T tops, nice stereo and everything. Very, very, very stock. Very, very stock. And I got a lot of compliments on that one. Sounded cool, not fast. It was a, right. kind of a pig on the road or whatever, but uh, yeah. sounded cool. Looked fast. <laughs> yeah, that car doesn't get enough love. I think the Z thirty one. It's kind of like you know, it it goes missing in between the the 280 uh and 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 216 240 on the one hand and then the you know the subsequent 300 zx which is an incredible uh, yeah, car keep up with the supra with that twin turbo yeah 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 so you mentioned uh you mentioned your book uh tell me about your next projects and the manuscripts you're working on i know uh some of your poetry stuff has been finalist and won contest things like this tell me about your next projects both on the creative end and your uh uh, criticism. Sure. So my, I'm still trying to get my first full length uh, poetry manuscript cool. uh, published. Book's called Past Lives, and you know, once every nine months, uh, it's a finalist uh, for something. <laughs> yeah, uh, and uh, that you know that keeps me in the game. <laughs> right, <laughs> but right. It also can be a little bit frustrating, but I am starting. I have started a new poetry manuscript. The working title is Central Time. It's, a, it's about being in the middle of things. In, in part, it's, it's about Chicago, where I was uh, for a decade um, while I was getting my PhD. But it's also about centers and, and, and middles. Right. My, uh, my critical book is it's a book on philosophy and literature. Uh, it's about uh, skepticism and uh, impersonality in modernist poetry and that book deals with emily dickinson t.s Eliot, paul valery elizabeth bishop james merrill all great poets all poets that mean a lot uh, to me very different poets and the argument of that book is that um, the impersonality that we find in uh, modern poetry uh, can be seen should be seen as a response to skeptical doubts about the publicity of our experiences. So I was kind of mentioning this earlier in the podcast. Yeah, but. yeah. So that book will be part of a, a, a series on philosophy and poetry that Bloomsbury uh, is doing. It's a very interesting nice. series for those of us who are into that stuff. Yeah, very cool, man. Well, good. Well, we wish you luck on the on all those projects, man. Very cool. And so very well established that you are a writer and this is the writers and fighters podcast i always ask the writers though do you have any experience or any interest in stuff in the fight world i do i do i mean as a kid i loved boxing and you know the the 80s were an exciting time uh for boxing you know i think of the rise of mike tyson of course you know when he when he beat spinks yeah in like 90 seconds or however few <laughs> yeah. um, seconds it was when he lost to Buster Douglas. I mean, I don't remember the year exactly when he lost. It might've yeah. been, into, I'm not sure, but uh, there were major, major events and they were captivating. My father was captivated by them. I was captivated by them. Um, I remember uh, not watching, but, but hearing a lot 
uh, both before and after the uh, Sugar Ray Leonard uh, Marvin Hagler uh, fight. And I loved to watch Olympic boxing too. Yeah. I didn't really keep up with it. I will say my PhD advisor, Bob von Hallberg, um, is a legend in Chicago because okay. he was a literature professor who was deeply, deeply interested in boxing. And uh, he's a guy you should have on the podcast. Um, oh, yeah, put me in contact, yeah. Yeah, he, he teaches now at Claremont uh, McKenna. But I deeply regret not going. To, I think his. I think he had, you know, I think the, the intensity of his interest sort of predated my arrival in Chicago. But there were rumors that uh, he would uh, take graduate students to the fights or even to the gym to, like, work out nice. uh, oh, a yeah. bag. And honestly, I, I would have benefited from you know, working a body bag at some points in my dissertation. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, a few years ago, I thought about doing boxing lessons here in uh, Louisville. Uh, there's a gym very close to where I live. Um, but um, there, there was some skepticism in the household about whether I was maybe too old uh, to... Uh, You're old and your, your brain's yeah. worth too much, dude. So. I, might, I might need... <laughs> brain cells too much so we'll see it is it's a, it's a possibility um yeah no yeah it's one of those things you can always train and just never spar man plenty of people do that and i'm uh again as somebody who went through the grad school grind and and the the writing frustrations and the sending stuff out and getting all that yeah who couldn't hit a heavy bag in the garage every once in a while oh, right yeah. <laughs> well cool man hey well Good luck on all your stuff. How do we keep up with you and direct people to uh, what you're up to? Social media, sure. website, what you got, bud? Yeah, so I am on Twitter and I am active on it. And you can find me at V Joshua Adams on Twitter. And there is also a website, uh, vjoshuaadams.com, which has got some of my creative and critical pieces on there i'd be very happy to hear from anybody uh, who listens to this uh, about anything uh, i've said or or the poems or whatever great man great we will put your social media uh link the twitter link in the description for this in the show notes and we'll put the website up there as well joshua i really appreciate you making some time and talking writing stuff and talking car stuff and fight stuff very good conversation, man. I really appreciate you. It was a joy. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. All right, y'all. Thanks for listening to that interview with Joshua Adams, poet, critic, translator, and car guy calling in from Louisville, Kentucky, home of Muhammad Ali. I want to thank Joshua again. If you want to keep up with him, go over to Twitter at VJoshuaAdams. VJoshuaAdams on Twitter. He also has a website, VJoshuaAdams.com. has links to his essays, links to some poems. If you want to find out more about Joshua, go over there. I want to thank him once again. And I want to thank y'all for listening to the podcast and being patient as this content comes out. I know I was late this week, but the good news is I have four or five interviews already in the can. It'll be coming out in the next several weeks. So you can keep up with the podcast by subscribing on your favorite podcast app. 
You can also get updates on social media because we're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, even YouTube. If you want to look at the episodes we've had in the past already, go over to writersandfighters.com. Appreciate you guys listening. You guys be good, be safe, and take care of each other. Talk next week.